The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. The other item that I auctioned off, that was, that's a good question. Well, first of all, before I tell you that, you'll note that I put those two packages up here in the front of the room for this first section. One was bigger than the other. And you guys got the smaller one, right? And you obviously know what that was. The bigger one turns out to have been uh, a book. Um, in fact, it's a, a book that I recently published on hedge funds. <laughs> now, it turns out that the bidding of that second item went for $60. The bidding of the item that, that I sold to this section went for 45 And the fact that it's a smaller package, I think, makes some sense of why it went for a smaller amount. Um, that shows you the power of information or lack of information in terms of determining values. Yeah, question. Well, I don't think so. And one of the reasons that I had two different packages, and I showed both of you, uh, both, I mean, but this entire section, the two different packages, is to try to eliminate a bit of that kind of private information. I don't believe there was any. If I used the same two items, then I think there would have been a, a concern that there might have been some information spillover. So I don't think that was it. In fact, I think what it was was the size of the packages, believe it or not. So anybody that tells you that size doesn't matter, I think is, uh, is not uh, being realistic. Uh, was another question back here? OK, yeah. The book retails. The book retails for forty-five dollars. Now, of course, I uh, I autographed the book, so <laughs> so that probably reduced the resale value. But uh, and you know we played. You know I took the sixty dollars. You know no tears. Fair is fair. Uh, so this class, you know the individual who bid forty-five for that uh, iPod did very very well indeed. And uh, the student who bid $60 for the book didn't do quite as well. But that's the point of this example. It's that when you don't know what you're bidding for, when there's literally no information, you're obviously not going to get it exactly right. But you have to admit that in the grand scheme of things, it's actually not that far off. And not that far off in a very particular way. I, I want to, in particular, talk about the iPod. Because we were looking at something like a 70% discount off of the retail value of that for this class. Now, I want to comment on that in the context of what's going on today, because I, I, I want to spend a few minutes before we start the lecture talking about current events, because finance, of course, involves current events. And right now, we are going through an extraordinarily interesting set of times. I think that's a, a Chinese curse, right? May you live in interesting times. Well, we're going through some really extraordinary times, because what happened over the weekend is something that has probably not happened since the Great Depression. What happened over the weekend is that the federal government took over two of the largest government-sponsored financial entities in the world, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These are two government-sponsored entities. They're private organizations, but they have the, the backing of the government in some ambiguous sense. And it was ambiguous up until this weekend, what that meant. 
what happened was that these large financial institutions were responsible for purchasing the mortgages from various different regional banks and lending institutions. Why would they do that? What was their function? Anybody know? Yeah. To provide a secondary market for mortgages so that the banks that are the initial lenders can generate more mortgages and make credit more available. Exactly. Their goal was to really make credit more available in the housing market and the student loan market and the auto loan market, these consumer finance markets. The purpose of these two organizations was to buy up the various different obligations from banks and other financial institutions so that the banks and financial institutions could then go out and lend more money to more individuals that wanted these kinds of loans. So the purpose of these two organizations was really to support and grow these various markets. And it turns out that over the last 20 years, these markets have grown to epic proportions, tremendous proportions. And now, as the housing market has turned down, the original lenders uh, that made these obligations are facing some severe pressures. And that's carried the uh, ripple effects all the way through the financial system to the point where these two organizations literally could not stand on their own. And if there had been a default of these two organizations, there would be some major repercussions. We're going to talk about that in about four lectures. The material that we're going to develop over the next three lectures are going to allow us to analyze the situation and really try to understand what's going on in these markets. But I just wanted to alert you to the fact that something really big has happened. You won't understand fully what it is. You might read the newspapers, and I would encourage you to do so. But you won't fully appreciate the importance of it for another three or four lectures. But you're going to see this event unfold before your very eyes this semester. And that will provide the motivation for developing the tools to understand what's going on. Yeah? Can I ask the manager next to me now? Sure. Well, that's a, a very tough question. In terms of the, uh, the possibilities for the Secretary of the Treasury, Paulson, and the government, um, there aren't too many left uh, in the sense that these two organizations uh, are in a real bind in that they have issued lots of securities based upon their activities. And in order to maintain the quality of those securities, in order to make good on those promises that it has made to other counterparties, very important counterparties, I might add, including the governments of India, China, and a number of sovereign wealth funds that we depend on to loan us the money that has kept us in the style to which we have become accustomed in this country. Uh, in order for us to maintain those kinds of relationships, we have to make good on our promises. And it's getting harder and harder for these two organizations to do so because while they've got all of these promises that they've made, the money that's supposed to be coming in in order to allow them to make good on these promises is dwindling. And as they've tried to raise more money in the open market, it's become harder and harder because people realize that they're in trouble and it's very difficult for them to raise that money. In fact, this is related exactly to the point about the iPod auction that we engaged in last time. Think about how little I received for that $150 item. I received basically 30 cents on the dollar. And why? It's because 
none of you knew what was in that package. So now, instead of a, an iPod that's in a wrapped package, imagine if that wrapped package contained paper issued by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And now, I'm going to ask you, can you bid on this paper? Now, I don't know whether Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae will still be around in two years, but I'd like you to bid on this paper anyway. And by the way, what you get for this piece of paper, I don't really know. So it's wrapped up, and you don't know either. You don't know, I don't know, you know I don't know, and I know you know I know I don't know. <laughs> so what's that piece of paper going to go for? Well, probably less than 30 cents on the dollar, right? So what we saw happen in this classroom last time is exactly what's happened in spades to these two large organizations. At some point, there has to be a day of reckoning, and the Treasury decided, rather than waiting for that day of reckoning, because if that day of reckoning came before they were able to do something, it's very hard to put the pieces back together. So in my opinion, I think they had very little choice but to do something right now before it got out of hand. And we're going to talk about this again. In fact, we're going to run a trading game where all of you are going to get a chance to engage in this kind of trading. It's not exactly the kind that uh, involves credit, but it'll, it'll be a, a trading game where you'll get to see what it's like to be under pressure and to have to make decisions and value securities in real time. And you'll have a much deeper appreciation for the kind of issues that uh, we're up against. Yeah? Sorry, what did the government exactly do? Uh, agree to pay for all their... Right. Yes, so the government said, okay, you guys, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you can't make good on your obligations because you've got some problems. So we, the Treasury, will stand by all of your claims. Can the government pay that? Absolutely. You know how? How can the government pay that? What? Exactly. The government, they own the printing presses. So they just, you want to get paid dollars? I'll pay you dollars. Here, how many dollars would you like? I'm going to run it. Here you go. So we'll probably get inflation. That's, that's the concern. So the concern is that if you do this too much and you do it without anything backing up the pieces of paper you now print and give to your, your debtors, then there'll be a problem because pretty soon they're going to realize that the piece of paper isn't really worth as much as they thought it was. So inflation could be a problem. It could be a problem. We'll have to see. But right now, the paper, the dollars that are being printed are backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. And for the time being, that still means something. Yeah. So the question is, uh, is, is all of the debt being guaranteed, or is it just how much Freddie and Fannie issued? Well, certainly it's what they've issued. So all of the paper that they've issued will be backed by the government. In addition, there's some new paper that they have to issue in order to finance additional mortgages, and the government will back that too. Now, this is not for free. It's not just printing presses. That sounds a little too easy. Somebody has to pay for it. The money's got to come from somewhere. Or put it another way, that money that is spent now backing these instruments cannot be used for other things. So if you believe in balancing your budget as opposed to spending on credit, which frankly is what got us into the problems to begin with, then there will be additional reckoning. People have said that the American taxpayer will pay for this. Well, that's true, but the question is, which set of taxpayers? Is it us? Is it your children? 
Is it your children's children? There are a, a lot of intergenerational questions about where the burden lies. But the fact of the matter is, yes, we are on the hook. That the American taxpayer is on the hook for tens of billions of dollars. Now, in the grand scheme of things, tens of billions of dollars is nothing. I mean, the federal budget is much, much larger than that. So this is not a big deal. The concern is if, if this spreads and ends up costing us more because of ripple effects and knock-on effects that we don't yet know about, that could be a problem. And that, frankly, is one of the reasons why the Fed and the Treasury decided to step in now to try to contain this problem. How good they will be at doing that, we don't know. Read the newspapers over the next few weeks and let's see. Well, it's not worth exactly zero, but it's pretty darn close. And in fact, it's come down quite a lot. I think over the last couple of years, I don't know what the peak of the price was. I haven't looked at it. But I think that the, the decline has been on the order of 90 to 95% decline of what the peak was over the last couple of years, which is 83% yeah, since when? Yeah, that, that was just a day ago. But I'm talking about since the peak, I think it's come down dramatically. So effectively, the value of the shareholder's equity is pretty close to zero. But that's what happens in a bankruptcy. And by the way, we're going to talk about bankruptcy, too. That's going to be a very important part uh, of what we do when we analyze fixed income instruments. So we're going to get to that shortly. Yeah. Has there been anything about uh, government pensions going private again? There have been discussions about them going private, but private in a much smaller way. So the discussions that have occurred at the Treasury, and we don't know which way things are going to end up because it's a political process as well as an economic one, but there's a feeling that these two institutions got too big too quickly and that there wasn't enough oversight to allow them to be able to fail. In other words, they grew so big so quickly that after a point, they were, in fact, too big to fail. And when you're too big to fail, all sorts of abuses and improper risk management practices can go on, which we will talk about in probably eight or nine lectures. Okay? Uh, so there's a variety of proposals that have been put forward. And we'll talk about those also over the next uh, six or seven weeks. Who did the government actually bought the shares from? Are they federal agencies? Or is it private companies? So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are are called GSEs, government-sponsored entities, which means that they're not a federal agency, but they are backed by the federal government in some manner that has been, up until now, relatively vague. So they're meant to be private companies. They had a CEO. Uh, both of them had CEOs who, who were fired over the weekend. They have separate boards of directors. And they pay pretty attractive salaries, private, uh, you know, private uh, sector salaries. But they were related to the government in the sense that their objectives were to try to support and expand the housing market uh, financing, which was a, a government-dictated mandate to this. Uh, their, main, their main goal is not to earn money, it's to, to bring a secondary market for mortgages? Their, their main goal was to create uh, additional financing to allow the mortgage market to grow and to allow people to buy homes at reasonable rates. Their, a secondary goal was to make a profit on top of that. So that's why they're not just a government entity, but they have a kind of a quasi-private uh, sector type of mandate. And by the way, they did a great job. They did a great job in the sense that the housing market has grown tremendously. Now, you could argue that that was irresponsible and that created all these problems that we're facing today. But you, you talk to somebody 
who has a subprime mortgage that otherwise couldn't have afforded a house, that now has made every single payment and really enjoys living in their home and has a lifestyle that they couldn't have otherwise had. You talk to them and you tell them that it was a mistake. So it's not at all clear that this is a total disaster. It's unfortunate and it's a catastrophe from the point of view of the current holders of various pieces of paper that are related to these subprime mortgages. But there's a whole group of people out there that have benefited from these subprime mortgages. And so you've got to balance the costs and the benefits. And, and we're not doing that right now. Right now we're just panicking because we're all scared like hell that something really is going to break. But there's a positive side as well as a negative side to every story. And so we're going to have to talk about that in a little bit more detail. But we can't do that unless we have the framework to think about it. So that is going to lead me to today's lecture. Yeah. So there are, there are two groups of individuals that are involved. One are the shareholders of the companies themselves. And these are investors. A number of them are pension funds, institutional investors. So therefore, you and I, in our 401k plans, we might actually have an investment in one of these organizations through the plan sponsor that invests in various different entities. So like they're, they're a stock that was traded on the exchanges just like any other stock. That's one group. And those are going to lose most of their capital. They're going to lose their investment. Just like when a stock goes belly up, the investors of Enron, too bad. They lose everything. They're gone. They knew it. They took the risks. And the risks don't always work out. So that's that. The other parties that are involved are the folks that do business with these agencies, the counterparties that bought the paper that they issued, these IOUs and other complex instruments that Freddie Mae and Freddie Mac issued. Those individuals, we're hoping, will be uh, relatively happy about the outcome of the government backing the paper. Because now, the paper that they once held and thought was in trouble will have the full faith and credit of the US government behind them. And that, that is a major concern, because these counterparties are, are very, very substantial investors. If they decide that this paper is no good and they start getting rid of it wholesale, that will create some really significant market dislocation and mass panic. And that's what the Treasury stepped in to stave off this weekend. And hopefully, they will have succeeded. In fact, if you look at the data, it looks like they did succeed. But I'm not going to talk about that for another three or four lectures, because I want to show you exactly how to think about these instruments. And then we're going to look at the data and see whether or not they've actually done something significant. And you'll be able to tell by looking at market prices, by looking at the outcome of auctions like we did last time, we're going to be able to tell exactly what happened. OK? All right, well, that uh, took a little longer than I thought, but I think it's useful for motivation for what we're going to do in the class. What I want to do today is to start on lectures two and three, present value relations. And I have to tell you, this is one of the most interesting lectures of the entire course, not because of the, the underlying material, but rather because of the novelty of the perspective that I want to give you uh, about these kinds of, of issues. This is the very first step in changing the way you look at financial transactions. We're going to start by discussing cash flows and assets. I'm going to define some terms. And I want to change the way you think of an asset. 
And then we're going to talk about the present value operator. And then we're going to apply that to the time value of money. I want to make that concrete so that all of you will start thinking differently now about money today versus money next year. And then, probably not today, but next time, we're going to cover two very special kinds of cash flows, the annuity and the perpetuity. These are two mathematical abstractions that provide some really interesting insights into this whole notion of present value. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of technical issues, compounding and inflation, and that will lead us right to thinking about fixed income securities and how to value them and how the market values them and whether or not the two are the same or, or different. For the readings, I'd like you to start on Brealey and Myers-Allen chapters two and three. You should have already read chapter two from last time. I'd like you to reread that and also focus on chapter three for the next couple of lectures. Okay? So, first order of business. Let's define some terms. I think you all know what a cash flow is, right? It's just money that's coming to you or going away from you, a flow of cash. And you all know what cash is, I presume. The next question I want to take on is, what is an asset? You know, we talk about valuing assets, but we have to start first by agreeing on a definition for what an asset is. And I just put some examples up here of what assets are. Business entity is an asset. If you guys decide to do a startup, that startup has value. It's an asset. Property, plant and equipment, patents, R&D, stocks, bonds, options, and even something as difficult to value as knowledge and reputation are assets. Does anybody know of an example of a really valuable asset that is not physical at all? You can't touch it or feel it. Yeah. The algorithms that Google is using, that's right. Now, how do you know that those are assets? They generate revenue, right? And has anybody turned them into anything concrete, like any type of legal structure to make them assets? A patent, exactly. A patent, and Google has many patents, those have value. Not only are they considered assets, but you can actually trade them. You can buy a patent, sell a patent, license a patent. Yeah? Are, are they patents or are they trade secrets? Well, they're both. So Google has patents, but there are also a number of trade secrets that it uses to protect its intellectual property. What's a distinction? Yeah? No, no. What is a trade secret? It's a secret. Thank you. Well, well I, I'm not sure it's a patent without any kind of legal standing. In fact, it's sort of an anti-patent, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's not a patent. It's a secret, specifically. Like Coke, for example, the formula for Coke is a trade secret. It is not patented. When you, when you apply for a patent, you have to disclose fully what your patent covers. And that means that at the end of the patent's life coverage, which, well, at the end of the life coverage, it, you're out. And so I could go and, I mean, if Coke would have applied for a patent however many years ago, it would have expired, I could be making Coke right now. But a trade secret is a secret forever, as long as you take steps to keep the secret. Right. So they are taking the risk of the secret. 
Exactly. Coke is taking a big risk in that it has not filed for a patent. And frankly, if it did, it would have expired long ago. Now, what exactly is a patent? What's the motivation for a patent? A patent is a legal uh, agreement that says that if you tell me everything there is to know about how to construct the item or algorithm that you want to patent, if you're willing to disclose that to me and the whole world, and I acknowledge that it is new and useful, then I will grant you the ability to be the sole user of that algorithm, product, or business process for a finite period of time, say 17 years. So for 17 years, if anybody wants to use that algorithm, they have to pay you for that privilege. So it's a monopoly. It's a monopoly that the government grants you for a fixed period of time in exchange for what? In exchange for you to will be willing to disclose everything there is to know about it. And why is it? So that everybody else can learn from it. And after 17 years, and after you've made a god-awful amount of money, somebody else can take that idea and incorporate it into what they're doing and make money off of that. The patent process creates assets out of ideas. And it allows you to derive economic value from that in exchange for freely sharing those ideas. That's one path to go. The other path is I don't want to share because I think that I can do better by keeping it a secret. And that's what Coca-Cola has done. That's the example that I was thinking of, of an idea that has no legal standing. But that's one of the most incredibly valuable ideas in the world today. The amount of money that Coca-Cola produces is unbelievable given this simple recipe that apparently people haven't been able to figure out how to reproduce. I mean, how hard could it be? You know, you just mix a few things and add some coloring, and you know, then you get Pepsi. I don't know. Yeah. That's right. That's true. Now that's the case. They spent years building the Coca-Cola brand. That's one of the most recognizable brands in the world. And that has value too. And by the way, that value is different from the trade secret. So now we see that there's lots of different assets. And that's an asset, right? Yeah. Well, that depends. It depends on whether or not you think you can keep it a secret. right? Coca-Cola apparently has been kept secret pretty well. But there are a lot of other people working on the various different kinds of cholesterol-reducing drugs, not just uh, you know, the folks that develop Lipitor. So if you can keep it a secret, great. Keep it for yourself. But very often, you won't be because other people are working on the same research. Also, there's a certain cachet to having a patent, and it provides you with a certain kind of business, uh, business viability. You can go to an investor and say, here, I've got this idea. The idea has been certified by the US Patent Office. It is patent number XYZ, and that's why you should give me money. Versus you go to an investor and say, hey, I got a secret. I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> you know what? You're back to the iPod. OK? Andy, question? Oh, no, I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah, OK. So now we, we know that there are all sorts of assets, even intangibles, even things that you can't hold in your hand, can be an asset. 
I want you to forget about all of that. I want you to think about an asset in a completely different way. I want to reduce an asset to its fundamental core properties. And to do that, here's my definition of an asset. An asset at a given point in time, t, is simply equal to a sequence of future cash flows. CFT, CFT plus 1, CFT plus 2, dot, dot, dot. That is the definition of an asset that I would like to adopt for the next 12 weeks. Okay? Now, this might seem trivial to you, but trust me, it's not. It's a very subtle idea. And it's going to have all sorts of interesting implications that we're going to discuss over the next few lectures. But I want to make sure that everybody fully appreciates what I mean when I say an asset is a sequence of current and future cash flows. Let me just describe a couple of interesting things about this definition. First of all, it doesn't involve past cash flows. So when I define an asset, I have to define it relative to a point in time. That in and of itself, I think, is something new, right? So it's not enough to say an asset is Coca-Cola. You have to say that the asset is Coca-Cola today versus Coca-Cola 10 years ago versus Coca-Cola 100 years from now. Those are different assets. The point in time actually matters, in other words. right? This is like the Zen paradox. You can never step into the same river twice right? because water is moving. It's always a different river. In that sense, an asset as, at every point in time is a different asset. And that's not that surprising, because if you believe, from my definition, that an asset is equivalent to its current and future cash flows, then those cash flows are very different depending on where you stand. So for example, the stock of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as an asset was very different five years ago than it is today. They're both assets. They're both cash flows. But the cash flows are very different depending on what point in time you're talking about. So when I think about a cash flow, I'm thinking about a particular sequence that occurs given market conditions. And an asset is comprised of those cash flows. They are one and the same. When you tell me that you have an asset, I immediately think of, OK, what's the sequence of cash flows? That's all I care about. From the purposes of financial analysis, that's all that matters. Okay, So over the next few weeks, we're going to be building up a theory of financial analysis. The basic building blocks of that theory are assets. So you can think of assets as the molecules or atoms of a unified field theory of finance. And the protons and electrons, those are the cash flows. Okay? Yeah. Do the cash flows have to be positive? No. Nope. They don't have to be positive or negative, but they do have to be real numbers. So no complex numbers here. Okay? Positive or negative. That's what an asset is. Now, you might think, well, gee, if all the cash flows are negative, then I don't really want that asset. Well, that's the nature of an asset. Maybe then you call it, instead of an asset, you call it a liability. Exactly. But from my perspective, developing this atomic theory of finance, I'm going to focus on this as the basic building blocks. I don't care whether they're positive or negative for the moment. Okay? 
We're going to talk about their characteristics later, but I just want to agree on the definition of what an asset is. Question? Yeah. So uh, it's a sequence of cash flows. It's not a summation. It's right. It's not a summation. It's a sequence, meaning it's basically just a list of cash flows at different points in the future, including the present, but not the past. So according to my definition, the past doesn't matter. When you talk to me about an asset, all I'm looking at is current and future cash flows. Okay? And it's a sequence of cash flows. So that means they're ordered in time. And I'm not even telling you whether or not you know what the cash flows are. So it could be that the future cash flows, I'm writing them as letters, but who knows what the letters stand for? You might not know what the future cash flows are, but you can still nevertheless acknowledge that they exist as an abstraction. Okay? That's what an asset is. I don't care what you use to value your various different cash flows, but the definition of an asset is simply a sequence of current and future cash flows. All right? That's what we're going to talk about as an asset. So all the things that I listed up there, knowledge, reputation. Can reputation be considered a sequence of future cash flows? Does that make sense? How? What? Goodwill. How would you use that goodwill? Yeah. You know, your reputation is such that you know, people choose you instead of you know, a competitor. And so that additional cash flow from, from, from that choice is coming from reputation. Exactly right. The additional cash flow that you get based on that reputation, that's the value of the asset, or that is the asset right there. Absolutely. No reason why you can't have common cash flows across different assets, right? But nevertheless, a single asset is a collection of present and future cash flows. Yeah? Yes. But however, there's a market value of the building. Yeah. So what, if, if like it's a sequence of cash flow, yep. how, can, how can you like it? We're going to get to that. That's actually a very deep question that will require three more lectures before we get to. But I will answer that exact question in three lectures, if not before. Okay. Before we talk about how to value these assets, I want to make sure we agree on what a definition of an asset is. So I think we agree, right? Any, any questions about that? Yeah. So, so say you have a bunch of patents, but they can't generate any incremental cash flows, then it doesn't exist. Say you have them, but incremental cash flow from it well, well, not to be not to be anal about this, but you know, mathematically, a sequence of 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 is a bona fide cash flow, right? So the zero asset is possible, too. Okay. All right? <laughs> so this is absolutely general. Now, and you might, you might argue, at this level of generality, it's useless. Well, not, not quite, not quite. Because I think it helps us to formulate a perspective. And the perspective is, when you start thinking about various different kinds of assets, I'm talking really complicated assets, assets with all sorts of you know, options and triggers and various contingencies. The more complicated it gets, the more important this framework is. Because no matter how intimidating the problem you are faced with, the bottom line is an asset 
is a sequence of cash flows. It's simple, conceptually. The hard part is figuring out what those cash flows are. But the conceptual framework is what I want you to start with, because that will clear your mind of a lot of cobwebs that really don't belong in any kind of financial analysis. So we start cash flows. Sequence of cash flows is an asset. Okay. Now that I've told you that, there's lots of examples that you can come up with. So I've given you some in the notes. Please take a look at them. Each one of these is an asset. And each one of these represents a certain sequence of cash flows. Some may be more subtle than others, but they are nevertheless cash flows. So I want you to think about that. Read through these examples and make sure you understand why they are assets. Now, valuing an asset, that's the question that Young Hun was asking about. How do you value a sequence of cash flows? Because you and I, we might have a very different perspective on what that cash flow is worth. So for the moment, I'm not going to answer that question. Or rather, I'm going to answer it with a typical device that economists use all the time, which is I'm going to just create some notation to answer the question. <laughs> and the notation I'm going to give you is V, in particular, V sub t. That's a function that takes as its input a sequence of cash flows and spits out a number, which I'm going to call the value of the asset at time t. So how do you value a cash flow? Well, you use the value operator v sub t. You stick in a cash flow, and out pops a number. Okay. We're going to have to spend the next three lectures figuring out what v is. But I can tell you one answer right away. In fact, all of you know what V is, or one definition of V. What is it? Can anybody tell me what V is? Where do you get V from? Yeah. That's right, but you're close. Where did that come from, what you pay for it? What do you mean by that? Market price. What market? What market? Yeah. Exactly. Any market. This is what you were getting at. What you pay for it, any market. If there's a market, you've got your V. So V, one example of a VT is a market at time T. Right? That's what we did last time. We had a value operator. Stick in a, a gift-wrapped box, and you get out $45. That's an example of a V. What we're going to try to do, though, is to take apart that box and see how it works and whether or not it does work. Well, we don't know what best means. So for our discussion right now, any market will do. But then you can have a separate discussion as to whether or not there are better markets or worse markets. And we have to define what that means. So we're going to get to that when we start talking about how the V operators work. Yeah. So we don't, know, we don't know what a perfect or an imperfect market is yet. And I'm going to hold off on that for quite a few more weeks. All we know is it's a market. So let me put it to you this way. In the last lecture, when I auctioned off that iPod and I only got a third of the price, would you consider that a perfect market? It didn't feel that way to me. <laughs> but on the other hand, it worked. 
I had something that I wanted to unload, and I unloaded it at a price that two mutually consenting adults agreed to. So you know that worked. That, that was pretty good. But in order for us to understand whether or not it really works, we've actually got to take apart the box. We've got to open up VT. I'm not going to do that just yet. I want to first acknowledge that there exist VTs out there. And more often than not, when you let the market dictate what that VT is, you actually get some pretty interesting results, results that will require a little bit more structure to interpret. One way to interpret the structure is to acknowledge that there's a time element to the cash flows. So when I ask you to analyze a VT or an asset, the first thing you're going to want to do is to draw this picture right here. And I'm serious about this. In order for you to understand the value of an asset, you have to know the timing of the cash flows. Time means everything in finance. Okay? A cash flow today is not the same as a cash flow next year. Yes. Right. So what I'm asking you to do is to think abstractly in terms of the cash flows themselves. I haven't talked about accounting practices at all. I'm going to come back to how we actually implement this. And at that point, it'll be important to bring in the accounting elements. But for now, let's set them aside. Okay. So these are actual cash flows that you will receive at different points in time. And by the way, I want you to use this exact same framework for analyzing accounting practices. Because financial analysis can actually be used to ask the question, are accounting conventions good or bad? Some accounting conventions are favorable, some are unfavorable. But the only way to analyze them is by using this kind of a framework first. Okay? So I would argue that this will be certainly useful for looking at accounting practices, but it won't necessarily be the same. So you'll need to have to make that distinction. OK. So so far, nothing I've said is all that controversial, I don't think. I've simply defined that there's a value operator. Operator means function. You stick in a sequence of cash flows, out pops a number. And when you analyze the value of an asset, I want you to always draw a timeline and make sure you understand the sequence of cash flows. Okay? Without the timeline, I don't know that you really understand what's going on. So first of all, as a tip for your midterm and final exams, anytime you have a, a calculation, which you have to do a present value or valuation exercise, I want to see this. I want to see that you know when things are going to happen. Because nine out of 10 times when you make a mistake in valuation, it's because you lined this up incorrectly. OK. Now, what is V? Well, we said that one example of a V is the market. But is that objective? Is it subjective? Does it work well? How is value determined? And what we're going to do in this lecture and the next one is to take apart this function V in the case of no uncertainty. So remember I told you the two important factors in financial analysis that makes finance interesting and exciting is time and uncertainty. Right. And we've seen both of those things happen this weekend. A lot of time has passed in resolving the uncertainty with regard to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
what I'd like to do is to abstract from the uncertainty part. For the next couple of lectures, there's no uncertainty. Okay, I'm going to get rid of the randomness. And I'm only going to focus on figuring out the value operator, this v sub t function, for cases where we have cash flows at different points in time, but where the cash flows are known for sure. So there's no uncertainty about whether they're going to happen or not happen. Okay. After we do that, after we do the no uncertainty case for which we have a complete solution, I will then come back and introduce uncertainty in a somewhat more natural way. And then we're going to focus on valuation with uncertainty as well. Okay. So let me start with the perfect certainty case about how to figure out what this v sub t is. And I'm going to start with a very simple example that has to do with manipulating cash flows. And I'm going to talk in particular about foreign currencies. So I want to ask you, what happens when you add 150 yen to 300 pounds? What do you get when you add those two? 150 yen plus 300 pounds is equal to 450 what? $450? If, if, uh, if you believe that, please see me after class. And uh, we'll need to do some uh, transactions. Well, look, obviously, 450 makes no sense, right? It's like you know, adding your weight to your age. That number might be interesting, but there's no interpretation for it, right? So 150 and 300, you would never add those two and talk about 450 what, right? You, you don't even have a unit to be able to ascribe to it. Well, that natural reaction that you have, that natural aversion you have to adding up dollars or, or yen and you know, in different currencies, I want you to develop that exact same attitude towards cash flows at different points in time. So let me continue on with this. Obviously, if you want to add the two, you know that you have to convert them to the same currency, right? So 300 pounds converts to a certain number of yen. And so when you add that up, you get 46,050 yen. Or if you want to convert it to pounds, it converts to 300.98 pounds sterling. right? Those numbers make sense. The reason they make sense is because they're in the same units. So apples to apples is the familiar adage that we use. right? You can't add apples to oranges, actually, in theory, you could, right? You could make fruit salad, and you need apples and oranges and pears and all that. But for, the, for argument's sake, when it comes to money, it really doesn't tell you much that you've got you know, 450 blah. You need to have a set of units. Well, it turns out that this actual uh, analysis requires that we pick a base currency. We pick what's called a numeraire. A numeraire is a unit of account, or a standard, by which we measure everything. Okay, So either yen or pounds will work just fine. It doesn't matter which. If you're a British investor, you might care about pounds. If you're a Japanese investor, you might care more about yen. It just depends upon your perspective. But either one will do for the purposes of analyzing how much money 
you have at a point in time. Well, that exact same exercise has to be applied to money today versus money tomorrow because those two things are not the same. It's like yen and pounds. They're not the same. They can't buy the same things. They aren't used in the same way. They have different markets. The markets are related, but they're different. So once you know the exchange rate and once you pick a base currency, you can combine the thing. The same idea holds true for cash flows at different points in time. Cash flows at different points in time are like different currencies. In order to add them together, you've got to use the appropriate exchange rates. Okay? Once you do, then all of the valuation that we're going to conduct over the next couple of lectures becomes absolutely trivial. So let me give you an example of that. Here's my timeline. And my timeline has payoffs at various different dates. Now I'm arguing that the past and the future cannot be combined without converting them. So we have to have a set of exchange rates that convert all the various different currencies into a numeraire or single base currency. And for the sake of argument, I'm going to just pick time zero dollars today as my base currency. So in other words, I want to convert every cash flow into the single currency that is today's dollars. Okay? So in particular, over the course of T days, days one through T, how many different currencies do I have apart from my base currency of time zero money? Yeah, I've got T different currencies, T dates. Every single date, it's a different currency. And I need to convert them in order to add them up. OK? So I'm going to argue that the cash flow, uh, the, the sequence of cash flow, CF1, CF2, dot, 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 if I want to figure out what it's worth in a single currency, date zero currency, I've got to multiply the cash flows by the appropriate exchange rate. What's the exchange rate? The exchange rate is how many dollars at date one per dollar at date zero? How many dollars at date two per date zero dollar? How many dollars at date three per date zero dollar? And so on. I'll have T exchange rates for the T different kinds of currencies that I have. Each currency is dollars denominated as of a particular date. Any questions about that? Pretty straightforward? You think it's straightforward, but you're going to have to think about it for a little while and do some problems to really make sure you appreciate this perspective. All right. Now, we're ready to talk about what this value operator is. I'm going to argue that once you've got the exchange rates across the various different currencies, then the value of the collection of cash flows is just the sum of all of the values of the cash flows denominated in the same currency. But instead of currency meaning pounds or dollars or yen, the currency is going to be date zero dollars. Okay? Questions about this? This is important. Oh. 
So I'm going to define something called the net present value operator, NPV, as the date zero value of the cash flows. Now, why is this called net present value? Because typically, when you are valuing uh, an investment, you have to pay some money up front, and then you get cash flows later on. And so your net investment is going to be given by some summation of those pieces. But it's not a, a simple sum. You can't just add the numbers. That would be like adding 300 yen to 150 pounds or whatever. You have to figure out how to convert all the currencies to the same unit of account, dollars today. And so that's why it's called present value. That's the value at the present today. And the reason it's net is you're netting out any initial investment, which is the cash flow at time zero. OK? So V sub zero is equal to CF zero. Notice there's no exchange rate because we're doing it in today's dollars. So that's the base currency, plus the cash flow tomorrow multiplied by the exchange rate between dollars tomorrow and dollars today, and so on. If there's an initial investment, then the initial cash flow is negative. That just means you have to put money in to the project or the investment. And then over the course of the next T periods, you get cash flows, which could also be positive or negative, And you have to convert them into today's dollars. And once you do, you look at that number, and you see whether or not you like it. That's the value, the net present value of the cash flows. Now, I have one un unanswered question for you. What's the unanswered question in all of this analysis? Sounds good, right? It's pretty simple stuff. But I pulled something out of the air. What did I pull out of the air? The exchange rate. Exactly. Exactly. Where do I get the exchange rates? You should be asking me. Where do you get the exchange rates? And you know what I'm going to tell you? What, what, what's the answer I'm going to give you? Where do I get the exchange rates? From the market. Exactly. From the market. I get it from the market. How do I get it from the market? Well, we did it last time. You know how. We're going to auction it off. You want to see how? I've got a security that pays a dollar a year from today. It pays a dollar a year from today. Who will offer me a penny for that piece of paper? Who will offer me 50 cents for that piece of paper? 75 cents, 80 cents, 90 cents, 95 cents, 97 cents, 98 cents. Well, all right, 97 cents to the dollar. There you go. That's the exchange rate right there. We're done. By the way, I appreciate that. That's a lot of confidence in my credit worthiness. It's only a 3% discount. All right, well, that's the exchange rate between today and next year. What about today and five years from now? Where do we get that from? Exactly, the market. OK, I've got a piece of paper. It pays a dollar five years from now. How many people will pay me a penny for that? We'll go through the whole motion and come up with, come up with the same kind of process, and we'll get a number. So the market. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to have to question whether or not that is a good way of getting the exchange rates. I'm not going to talk about that just yet. But that's where we get it from. Okay. So 
I've begged the question a little bit, but I think I've actually made some progress in providing a framework to think about valuation. Once we establish the exchange rates, you will agree with me that I can value any, any cash flow whatsoever, where the cash flow payments are known with certainty in advance, right? So that's a pretty impressive achievement in the space of uh, 45 minutes, right? We've actually figured out how to value any cash flow whatsoever under perfect certainty given the exchange rates. And I've told you where to get the exchange rate from, to get them from the marketplace. That's why financial markets are so important. It's because we require those inputs into our valuation process for doing the analysis. We rely on financial markets. If financial markets didn't exist, we can't do this. I'd have to wave my hands and say, well, you can get it from some kind of theoretical source. You just make it up. Just come up with some numbers. That doesn't sound very compelling. And in fact, it's not. The power of financial markets is the wisdom of the crowds. And like it or not, you're the wisdom that we're tapping on. You know, we're tapping your wisdom to come up with these exchange rates. OK. So we know now that the value of a sequence of cash flows is simply equal to today's dollars when you discount, when you use these exchange rates to convert them to present dollars, dollars today. And that's often called present value. Notice that these exchange rates are sometimes called discount factors. The reason they're called discount factors is because typically they are numbers that are less than one, like what we saw today. A dollar next year, I was able to auction off for 97 cents today. That number is smaller than a dollar because people are impatient. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar next year. So if I promise you a dollar next year, you're only willing to pay me a little bit less than that for that privilege. Okay? So it's a discount over what it would be on the day that it gets paid. Yes? What exactly are you discounting? Is there perfect, perfect, like my inflation? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Let me repeat it for everybody to hear. The question is, what are you discounting if there's no uncertainty? Why should a dollar next year be worth less than a dollar today? Because there's no uncertainty. I've, I've ruled out uncertainty, right? So there's no default risk. It's impatience. People want to consume now versus later. And therefore, if you're going to force somebody to consume later, you've got to somehow offer them some incentive to do that. So in order for me to have you give me a dollar so that I can take the dollar now, and I'll pay you back a year from now so that you can't consume that dollar today, you have to wait a year to consume that dollar. In order for me to do that, I actually have to make it interesting for you, which means you give me 97 cents now, and I give you back a dollar next year. I pay you extra for that time that you have to wait. Yeah? Could you also make an argument that I should take my dollar now and give it to somebody who needs to use it now and charge them for the privilege of using it my dollar now? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, yeah, we, haven't, we haven't talked about the mechanism for determining what that exchange rate is. And I'm going to come to that. But before we even talk about that, I want to acknowledge that it exists and it's real. And we can figure out what it is just from a simple auction, a market, and we can use it. 
Okay? But I'm going to get to exactly what it means and how we arrive at those exchange rates. That's going to be a very important part of this. For inflation, we know that um, the cost of inflation, $1 today is also worth less than $1. Mm-hmm. That's right. I'm going to get to that at the end of this lecture. That's another reason why there might be some kind of discounting. It's not just the time preference. That's right. Exactly. Yep. So we're going to come back to that as well. Deflation can occur. Negative real interest rates can occur during certain unusual periods of economic development. So that's a possibility. It's not a possibility that we've seen in the United States in recent years, but other countries have experienced that. And when that happens, there's some really serious repercussions. So we're going to come to that. In fact, in 2004, the US government, early on in that year, was very concerned about the possibility of deflation. And it was only towards the end of 2005 that inflation became more of a concern. So we're going to, we're going to come to that as well. Yes, I would. And let's hold off on inflation for now because I don't want people to get confused by it. It's something I'm going to bring in at the very end. All right? So I will come to that. That is a topic for, uh, for lectures two and three. OK. So we now know how to value uh, cash flows, at least using this very simple framework with exchange rates. And here's an example, just a very, very simple one, where I've got the two discount rates or exchange rates for next year and the year after. It's 90 cents to the dollar and 80 cents to the dollar. Notice that the farther you go into the future, the more of a discount these exchange rates require. That's also human nature having to do with impatience and possibly inflation and other kinds of phenomena. But we're, and again, I'm not going to tell you how we got those numbers. I got them from the marketplace. Okay. Now. What's the net present value of a project requiring a current investment of $10 million with cash flows of $5 million in year one and seven in year two? That's trivial, right? Here you go. Minus $10 million today, $5 million next year, but next year's dollars is not the same as today's dollars, so you've got to convert it to the right currency. So that's 90 cents to the dollar multiplied by five, and then 80 cents to the dollar multiplied by 7. When you add it up, you get 100,000 of today's dollars. That's what this investment is worth. So the first question is, should you take this investment? Is it a good project? Well, let me ask you, do you want $100,000? Yeah, if you don't, again, see me afterwards. I will help you with this problem. <laughs> Remember the first day. I told you that once you figure out valuation, management is trivial. Well, I wasn't just kidding. This is an example. What we've been able to do is to take a problem. What's the net present value of a project requiring this sequence of cash flows? We've been able to take that problem, that management problem. Should you do this or not? We've been able to reduce that to a simple question. Do you want $100,000? I think the answer is yes. So that's the management part. Okay, Let's do this. Done. The valuation part is the hard part. The management part, the decision, is easy once you have the right numbers in front of you. Second question, suppose a buyer wishes to purchase this project but pay for it two years from now. How much should you ask for this project? Now, 
the first thing you need to do is what? Well, that's the second thing. The first thing you need to do, draw a timeline. Okay? Draw a timeline so you know exactly what's going on. Two years from now, is that next year? Or is that two years from today? So draw a timeline. And you can figure out, once you have the timeline, what the present values and future values are. Okay. So when you work out the numbers, you can actually make a decision and figure out exactly what you ought to charge for that. Okay. That's it for the time value of money, but I want to summarize by telling you what we've learned so far. We've learned that we can value cash flows, assets, which are sequences of cash flows. And the way we value that is by making some implicit assumptions. The assumptions are we know the cash flows in advance, so there's no uncertainty about what the cash flows are. Second, we know the exchange rates. And if you don't know them, go get them. Where do you get them? You get them from the marketplace. Okay? And finally, there are no frictions in the currency conversions. One thing you didn't ask me about is that typically when you go abroad and you have to convert your currencies, what do you have to do? You have to find somebody that converts it for you, and typically they will charge you a fee for that conversion. Right? I've been talking as if the conversions happen without any kind of frictions. That's an assumption that can be tested. So we're going to talk about frictions later in the course. But for now, we're going to assume that there are no frictions. Okay. Now, of course, these are all hypotheticals. They're all approximations to a much more complex reality. But once we understand how the model works with these simplifying assumptions, we can then go back and say, OK, let's make the assumptions more realistic. And let's see how that affects the implications. So I'm going to first do the plain vanilla version of this. And then after we fully understand it, I'm going to come back and make this more complex. Okay. So for until lecture 12, that's a long ways away, but until lecture 12, I'm going to assume that these assumptions hold. And after lecture 12, I'm going to go back and systematically question and expand and revise each one of these. So when I told you during the first day of class that you can't handle the truth, this is what I mean. We're going to start simple and try to understand the implications of these simplistic assumptions. And then little by little, we're going to make the assumptions closer to the truth. Okay. Now, more examples. Once we understand how this exchange rate mechanism works, we can look at all sorts of other alternatives to calculating value. So in particular, one question that you might ask that was asked is, a dollar today should be worth more than a dollar in the future because of impatience, because of inflation because of all the reasons we described. But the bottom line is supply and demand. More people want money today than money tomorrow. And so supply and demand, bottom line, dictates that there is this difference between the two. So we can actually figure out what that difference is by looking at the exchange rates. So in particular, a dollar in year zero, uh, if you hold it for a year, it'll turn into a dollar times something, the reverse of the exchange rate of a dollar in year one brought back to year zero. But I'm going to write it in this format, one plus something. Because remember, when we're going the other way, 
when we have a dollar in year one and we want to figure out what is it worth in today's dollars, that's a discount, right? It's a number less than one. So if you want to go the opposite direction, if I have a dollar today and I want to know how much is that dollar worth a year from now, it should be greater than one. In fact, it should be the reciprocal of the exchange rate going the other way, right? It's, instead of looking at pounds, you look at yen. And so it's the opposite of the same exchange rate. But the way I'm going to write it is 1 plus r, because it'll be greater than 1 typically. So r will be a number typically greater than 0. What about for two years? I'm going to simply write it as 1 plus r quantity squared. And the reason I do that is because I'm thinking about taking that same growth rate and applying it two years in a row. Okay, I could have written 1 plus z, and z then would be the rate of growth over a two-year period. But I like to think in terms of annual frequencies. So I'm going to just simply assume that a year is my unit of account. And then looking at a one-year, two-year, three-year kind of growth period, I'm going to simply take powers of this factor 1 plus r. Okay, So a dollar in year 0 is going to be worth a dollar times 1 plus r to the teeth power in year t. This r is often called the opportunity cost of capital. In fact, there are like five different names for this r. It's called the interest rate. It's called the growth rate. It's called the cost of capital. It's called the opportunity cost of capital. John Maynard Keynes called it the user cost. There are tons of names for this quantity. But the basic idea is it's the, it's the reverse of the exchange rates that we were looking at before when we were trying to bring everything to today's dollars. Now, the reason I'm showing this to you is because it turns out that we're going to want to move money back and forth through time. And in order to do that, we need to sometimes multiply and sometimes divide. And I want to come up with just one set of notation as opposed to all these exchange rates floating around. So remember when we had t periods, and I wanted to figure out what the value of an asset was today, given t periods, we had to have t exchange rates. That's a pain in the neck to carry around t numbers. And moreover, there are exchange rates that you have to deal with between dates t plus k and t plus j. So any two dates, you got to have an exchange rate between them. So pretty soon, the number of exchange rates you got to keep in your head is ridiculous. Right? That's why they came up with the euro, right? to try to <laughs> unify some of these exchange rates. So here's a way to unify all the exchange rates into one number, little r. Once you know little r, you know everything. You know all the exchange rates for every possible two dates that you care about. Now, where do we get little r from? Exactly. You're learning. So we get it from the market. Now, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that. It turns out that the market's going to give us many different r's. So we're not going to get to that yet. So for now, let's just assume that the market gives us one r, this r. Once you have this one number, r, it will allow you to do all of these calculations back and forth. You can move money back and forth through time, because you will know what the exchange rate is between any two points 
in your cash flow sequence. Okay. Now that we have the R, let's go back and figure out what the exchange rates are. What we were talking about in terms of bringing stuff back to date zero. Okay. And it turns out that there's a really simple form. It turns out that a dollar in year one, if you paid me a dollar in year one, and I wanted to figure out what it was worth today, given this R number that I used, it's actually just equal to a dollar divided by 1 plus R. So what's the exchange rate? What's that? That's not the exchange rate. What's the exchange rate that allows us to take a dollar next year and bring it to a dollar today? It's 1 over 1 plus R. 1 over 1 plus R. Remember, R is a number greater than 0. So 1 over 1 plus R is a number less than 1, like 97 cents to the dollar. So the exchange rate between next year's dollar and today's dollar is 1 over 1 plus R. What about the exchange rate between a dollar two years from now and today? What is that? 1 over 1 plus R squared. That's right. And so on. So the exchange rates or discount factors are simply related to the little r's in this manner. Okay. That's the mechanics and mathematics of present value. Now, this might seem intuitive. And when I say it, you might understand it, or you might think you do. Please go back between today and Wednesday, go over this, and test yourself. You know, Try to figure out for a given R, if you have $100 today and R is 7%, what is $100 worth three years from now? Or if you have $180 three years from now and you want to figure out what it's going to be worth not three years from now but a year from now and the R is 8%, what is it equal to? Test yourself by coming up with little examples to challenge your own understanding of this concept. Because it's going to be critical. We have to get this right because everything that we build from here on in is going to rest on the foundations of these calculations. Okay. Now, with these R's, I'm going to leave you with this one last concept, which is that the value of the cash flows that we've been talking about at time zero is simply equal to the cash flows multiplied by the exchange rates. And now, with this definition of little r, this opportunity cost of capital, this interest rate, this uh, discount rate, we then have an expression for what this value operator ought to be. Right? Using this expression, any cash flow in the world can be valued under perfect certainty and under the assumptions that we described. Any cash flow can be valued. Therefore, any asset can be valued. So what we've done in the space of a lecture is to create a valuation operator that works for virtually anything under the sun in certain simplified circumstances. That's a major achievement. You can congratulate yourself that we've reached this level. But we're going to have to do some more work to think about how to use this. So we're not done yet. We have some additional analysis to do, but this is a wonderful starting point. Next time, we're going to focus on how to take this and apply it to two very, very special cash flows, an annuity and a perpetuity, and you know what this is going to do? This is going to allow you to figure out what your mortgage payments are every month when you go apply for a mortgage. 
You'd be surprised at how subtle that calculation is and how many bankers don't know how to do it. Well, you will. All right? I'll see you next time.